This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Okay, that's, I think that's one of the most crucial things to understand. That there tends to be a focus on the Gospels and not the Pauline epistles. In terms of Christology... Talk to mention scripture there. Can you see that? Christology. Uh, clearly, uh, there is uh, an idea that the Logos, which is the language of Greek philosopher, philosophers who have now become converted, speaking of Christ, and that somehow God, the Creator, produced the Son the Logos, the eternal Logos. And Justin very clearly identifies the eternal Logos with the historical Christ. Now, again, we're going to see a little taste now of the Greek philosophical influence. Uh, Theophilus and some of the other early Greek uh, apologists identified the Logos with reason. And insofar as uh, he talks about the Logos before the creation of the world, the Logos comes very close to being abstract reason. And there doesn't seem to be much of a personality as they talk about the Logos in its, in its pre-existent form. And it's only with the creation of the world and then the incarnation that the Logos begins to have personality and become a person. Uh, in other words, there's a lot of confusion about the Logos. And there's some confusion about uh, just what he was before the creation of the world, what his role was, what his function was. Uh, there's some talk from, from some philosophers, uh, some Greek apologists, that identified just as we have reason in us, so Christ was the Logos, was the reason of the Father. Uh, they're grappling with ways to explain who Christ was. Yes? Quick clarification. He, uh, he believed that the Logos was created by the Father? No. He identifies the Logos with the historical Christ. Uh, the, Christ the Logos is eternal. Just like, well, I don't know if I can give you an even, it's not even a good example. Uh, our reason is so identified with us, right? Our rationality, our ability to think. Well, that is very much identified with the Father, the Logos, His, his ability to, to reason, the Logos. So there's a, there seems to be this, this idea of, of eternality associated with the Logos. Again, there are lots of things that are not entirely clear. 
doctrine of immutability? Do they see some kind of change that the Logos then took on personality? Well, they are not talking in very specific terms here. Uh, Again, there's a lot of unclarity at this point. Uh, some, as we move along here, will get more clear, and as they get clear, sometimes they get very strange. And I'll, I'll mention some of the strange things as we go along. Well, heresy and, and and sometimes just strange. That's right. I mean, you know, you look at Origen, for example, and a lot of folk want to put him in a category of heretic. Others are just think he's mixed up. So. <laughs> and uh, some of the weird ideas that I know I'll, well maybe none of you did but I had some really weird ideas yeah. I think it's a, in some ways that's a very good example uh, there's a lot of immaturity in the early church with their, it's a baby church and it's taking its first steps and it's grappling to understand and it's using every any means at its disposal including Greek philosophy to try to understand who Christ is and what His relationship is to the Father. I mean, this in some ways is one of the crucial questions. We're going to later on get to this in more more detail about how the church formulated specific uh, the orthodox view. At any rate, all this confusion about who the Logos was. Somehow He's related the Logos is to the Father. And there does, it appears that there's a certain impersonal quality at some points and other points the Logos has, has personality. And is particularly identified with Christ. Now, the thing that I've already mentioned is that with Justin Martyr, what you find is that the Logos is subordinate to the Father. As important as the Logos is, he is not on quite the same footing as the Eternal Father. You remember what Justin said. In the first apology, he said, He, Christ, is the Son of the true God Himself. And holding Him to be in the second place. And the prophetic spirit in the third rank. So what you find early on is that there is a sort of, sort of ranking going on. God the Father is first, a first rank. And then the Son, Logos, is in the second rank. And the Holy Spirit is third. So there's a certain prioritizing going on. And I think I can sort of look back and, and, and think that, that I might have, at this early stage, how the, how understand how the church would have done this kind of ranking. I mean, after all, if God the Father is the Creator, then He's going to sort of get automatically get first top billing. And the Holy Spirit then comes subsequently to bring about redemption. That's a more. That's a second rank and a second phase. So there is a real subordinationism. Uh, you don't. You find uh, that the logos and Holy Spirit are very much exalted and and important, but they're not quite on the same uh, essential level as the Father. Question. No, this is at this point. Th- those are. That's not a, an appropriate distinction. Uh, there, at, yeah, this, this is we're still still some centuries away for, from that that break. So uh, early on, I mean, you, you do find 
different trends beginning to emerge. In fact, I'm going to talk about, do I have it up here? I talk about Eastern theologians, and I'll talk about Western theologians early on. So yes, early on you do find the beginnings of, of different uh, stresses and different emphases in, in, in theological conceptions. So there is some difference there. But at this point, it's a, it's a little too early to start talking about Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church. At any rate, Justin Martyr will talk about Christ as the first begotten work of the Father, for example. Again, to illustrate that uh, the Son is subordinate to the Father. Although he's perfectly willing to talk about Christ being virgin-born, that in no way the fact that there is some subordinationism in no way takes away from the historic, the, the biblical assertion of the virgin birth of Christ. Still, there is struggle to define the relation of the divine persons to one another. They, they're talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they just don't know quite how to put it all together. I think this is interesting. I think this is a good testimony uh, the fact that they struggle to understand the interrelationship suggests that they that the scriptures that whatever it was they had early on, there was some threeness that was jumping off the page and saying think in terms of three. They didn't quite understand how it all fit together, but there is this threeness that is emerging from the biblical writings, and they're having now to contend with it and struggle with it, struggle to understand it. Soteriology. Up here. Uh, Theophilus is the first one to use the word triad. Okay? I just, I just, I've already mentioned that, so I'm going to pop up. There's, there's that, that language. Again, another attempt to understand the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the soteriology is, is very simple very superficial. Basically, the soteriological scheme early on is this. Those who do good works, works of piety, those who are baptized, those who partake of the Eucharist, for their good works, they are rewarded with eternal life. Those who do not do these things are punished with eternal judgment. This is prior to Pelagius. In fact, we'll get to that too. <laughs> Augustine is, is really a watershed in the development of Christianity, Christian theology. Uh, before Augustine, we don't have a clear... Uh, the general trend is in favor of Pelagius at, the, at that time. That well, I think he inherited what was generally understood. Yeah. Absolutely. I, mean, the, I think it's a very important point. To, to involve yourself in those kinds of things was a terrible, was a, was a major sacrifice. It, a, a lot was at risk to do those things. But there does seem to be, 
a clear idea that if I do these things, even martyrdom, that I will be rewarded for what I have done. There is, it's a very simple soteriological perspective. I do good works and I'm rewarded. Now, please understand, I'm giving some general ideas here and there are from time to time exceptions. But by and large, you have this very simple, uh, straightforward idea of soteriology. You do good works and you're rewarded. You do bad works and you're punished. Do you have a comment? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point, because of course he he held that at least ten of the writings of Paul were uh, were valid. That's right. Yeah, Marcy and the Heretic. Yes. Well, I'll go back to an earlier statement. It is very difficult to identify how little it is we must believe in order to be saved. If you know, if if I were to do a survey, if I could look at every evangelical and go to every evangelical church and know for sure what it was they believed, I would be very upset at what the average evangelical believes about Christ. Do I conclude that therefore that almost all evangelicals are going to hell because they don't understand things properly? Well, the fact of the matter is, I don't understand everything properly. Uh, so, I mean, there's, we, there does need to be some humility here, some graciousness, uh, and, and also a desire to communicate the truth. Uh, in those kinds of situations, you know, I see, I see my role as making an effort to graciously inform and encourage that person who seems to have a very shallow or superficial view of who Christ was and the, person, the work of Christ on the cross and redemption. Uh, I think that is the right and proper approach. Again, it's very difficult to, to make those kinds of judgments. And I'm not sure we're even supposed to uh, worry too much about looking inside somebody's heart. Uh, basically, we, we deal with people on the basis of their profession unless they do something that really clearly indicates they are not. Uh, but but it's, I think it's fair to say that most evangelicals have uh, less than ideal an ideal understanding of the person and work of Christ. I think I've said this to you before. I think I've even said it in this class. But uh, some years back when I was in... I did tell you this, I think. I was sitting in a Sunday school class and somebody said, you know, what do you think about Jesus? How was He God and how was He man? And so about five people stood up and said, well, this is what I think. No, no text, but just, you know, what do you think? And I mean, every one of the heresies that we've, we've looked at and are going to look at emerged in that evangelical Sunday school class. The people clearly didn't know who Jesus was. Uh, 
But I don't conclude from that necessarily that all those people are not true believers. I might conclude that they have a way to go in terms of their understanding. But I don't necessarily have to conclude that they're unbelievers. They might be too. That, that's, I mean, that's also... I, I would also say there are lots of unbelievers in our evangelical churches. More than we'd, more than we'd care to admit. A rejection of faith alone. Uh, I think it was less. I mean, first of all, there's not a lot of attention given to this, and secondly, uh, there's just a general consensus. Uh, when you rely, when you don't have the Pauline epistles to guide you, for whatever for whatever reason, they they didn't. I don't think they were conscious of these things. This, it's, the church is an infant at this point, and it's taking its first halting steps theologically. And as a result, there are some mistaken notions. I think Justin Martyr writes, God foreknows what all men are to do, and it is, and it is His decree that each will be rewarded according to the quality of of his actions. A stress on reward for your actions. That seems to be the more typical soteriological outlook. The idea of free will is generally assumed, something you very much expect from people trained in Greek philosophy. And sin, sin tends to be associated with sensuality. Uh, it's, it's not quite so psychological having bad thoughts, but it's, it's bad. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is there's lots of, of uh, concern here about sensuality of one sort or another. And sin is, is more, tends to be identified with external kinds of things rather than internal kinds of things. Again, the church is an infant at this stage. Baptism is generally viewed as bringing forgiveness for sin. A very powerful uh, view of baptism. And in the case of, of Justin Martyr, you find a, a, um, a real generosity when it comes to... Uh, pagan philosophers that he's admired in the past. Uh, there was a lot of virtuous good deeds done by Socrates and others. And if your basic paradigm is, if I do good works, if I am virtuous, therefore I will be rewarded with heaven. It's not unreasonable uh, that Justin Martyr, in fact, as he does, uh, includes Socrates in the, uh, as a Christian. Yeah, it's very. There's just what we can say is there's a very close relationship between baptism and regeneration. Uh, have a very very strong view. Justin's theology and that of the Greek fathers in general is very legalistic and ascetic. 
rather than evangelical. Evangelical as we in the 20th century understand it. And finally, in terms of eschatology, just one, just one quick comment. Justin affirms an earthly millennial reign of Christ. Although he acknowledges, and this is interesting, that Christians differ on this question. So Justin does affirm an earthly millennial reign. Any questions then about the Greek apologists? You're talking about rewards and how Justin felt that it should work to be rewarded. Yeah. I thought you, sir, he was talking about salvation and not rewards in terms of sanctification. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's partly it's difficult uh, to know for sure, but but it, I'm just saying it does appear. You find it again and again among various Greek apologists where there is a real emphasis on reward and it's eternal reward for good works. Uh, and one of the good works you have to do is be baptized. Okay. So there's there's a there is this general pattern. Certainly you have to do good works in terms of sanctification as well. But there does appear to be I mean there it is a little bit difficult to go back and to read their writings because they're not using the same language that we use. They don't write in the same way that, ways that we do. But I think it's fair generally speaking that does seem to be the pattern in Justin Martyr as well as the other Greek apologists. They're talking about reward and meritorious works and the result of which is eternal life. So, and again, I want me just emphasize before, and we'll take a break here, but I think it has a lot to do with the fact that the Pauline epistles are not a part of the main diet of these early Christians, these early apologists. I think that's one of the, the main uh, explanation for this, this viewpoint. I want to look now at what I've called the early theologians. Early theologians. And that's, yeah, you can call them that too. Almost simultaneously with these apologies being offered to uh, defend Christianity, there are additional kinds of literature coming out from Christians. These first apologies are, some of them are more polemical, take a more aggressive stance, saying this is what we believe, and if you don't believe what we do, God is going to judge you. You find that. Now, upon this polemical literature of the early 2nd century, we begin to find attempts and evidences at putting together a systematic theology. In fact, tonight we should look at the first systematic theology. So, evidences of... Sort up here, just introduction. There are evidences of systematizing going on. Certainly by the end of the second century, you find this happening. And it's really a very logical development. It's not surprising 
that in, a, in a, an environment where there are persecutions going on, there are heresies, and you're trying to define yourself against these other forces. And so it's only a matter of time that uh, these folks are going to start thinking about systematizing. And so it is that apologetics paves the way for systematic theology. Yay. <laughs> This newly emerging interest, development of systematic theology, finds expression in the Alexandrian Catechetical School. Originally, uh, this now is in Alexandria, Egypt. Originally, this was, in effect, a good big Sunday school class designed for people who had been converted and are now being catechized, trained up uh, in the basic basics of Christianity in order that they can then be baptized. That's what this catechetical school began as. But by the end of the second century, the Alexandrian catechetical school developed into a more formal school of theology. And it began having its, its purpose changed from uh, preparing people for baptism to training up teachers and preachers. In other words, the Alexandrian Catechetical School is the first Christian seminary, broadly speaking. And at various times there were some very distinguished scholars who headed up the Alexandrian Catechetical School. I'll mention a few. Uh, the first superintendent of this school was Pantanus, a converted Stoic philosopher. We don't know anything about him except that he was the first superintendent of the Catechetical School and that he was a converted Stoic. He was followed by another Greek philosopher, Clement. But when persecution, when things got a little bit hot at the turn of the third century, Clement fled, leaving a vacancy at the Alexandrian Catechetical School. And Clement was succeeded by Origen. And it was under Origen that the school reached its highest glories. Afterwards, after Origen, in fact, the school was run by a number of his students. And you can see the names here. Heracles, Dionysius, and Didymus. In the 4th century, the school suffered decline in part because of the very famous Arian controversy, which we will get to shortly. And because of this controversy, uh, this school also suffered decline. And then in 642 A.D., Alexandria, Egypt, was conquered by the Muslims. 642 A.D., <coughs> which meant that there really wasn't a place any longer for the Alexandrian Catechetical School. Uh, I don't know offhand. 
Now, there was, from this catechetical school, a peculiar, dare I say, odd theology. And this peculiar theology in Alexandria is traced most particularly to Origen. And the goal is an attempt to reconcile Christianity with philosophy, or, to use their language, to reconcile faith with knowledge, or pistis with gnosis. All, of course, on the basis of the Bible. So, the Alexandrians had this goal. They saw Greek philosophy as a preparation for Christianity. Greek philosophy was seen as preparatory for Christianity and Greek philosophy was seen as a means Greek philosophy was seen as a means by which one could gain a deeper understanding of Christianity. I'll say those again. The Alexandrians, again now, they have a very high view of Greek philosophy. And they believe that it can serve two fundamental purposes in the service of Christianity. One, they think Greek philosophy can prepare one for Christianity. And secondly, that Greek philosophy can be a means by which one can attain a deeper knowledge of Christian doctrine. So their task was to set forth the truth of Christianity through Greek philosophy and to show that Christianity was the highest philosophy. Now one of the things you'll see here is there is a certain elitism at the Alexandrian Seminary. They recognize that there is a simple pistis, a simple faith. And that simple faith is sufficient for salvation. You can get to heaven with your uh, meager faith. But there is a higher knowledge that Greek philosophy can help you with. And that's what the Alexandrian Theological Seminary was all about, is giving you that deeper knowledge of the mysteries of Christianity. Yes? Mm -hmm. By the Muslims. That's right. Now, wait, wait a second. Go ahead. You find, yes. You find both influences circulating early on here. That's right. Uh, certainly, origin is Platonic in in his philosophical background. Yeah. Another question. Yes. There, I said there's a certain elitism attached to this particular school. And the elitism is this, that for the average Joe, 
pistis, or faith, a simple faith is adequate. But we, at the Alexandrian Catechetical School, we, through Greek philosophy, will give you the deeper, more profound understanding of the mysteries of Christ. Uh, that's what their goal is, is to attain this deeper gnosis. And if you suspect, if you sense here a little bit of Gnosticism, well, I hasten to remind you that Gnosticism had been big in Alexandria. And I think it's fair to say that some of those influences had infiltrated the church here. It's clear that the Alexandrians did not completely reject every aspect of Gnosticism. In fact, this desire that Gnostics had for a deeper knowledge, they, they sort of accepted that, they took it and they adapted it and said, yes, we want to get to that deeper knowledge and we think we have the tools to get to it. I'll get to that, Chris. <laughs> yes, he did. Their maxim, that is, the Alexandrians was, no faith without knowledge and no knowledge without faith. So, the Alexandrian Theological Seminary. Origin. You see his dates, and these are approximate dates. We're not sure exactly when he was born, nor are we exactly sure when he died. Now, when you come to Origin, he's a fascinating fascinating person. I, I know that I cannot communicate in the short time we have what a very interesting person he was. But there are really many origins. He was a philosopher and a scholar, a mystic, uh, a sort of Christian Gnostic, a Platonist, an ascetic, a churchman, and I guess in a sense perhaps even a martyr. Uh, the reason, uh, when I get to that, I'll, I'll explain why I hesitate to say whether or not he was a martyr. It's generally agreed that he was one of the most brilliant men of this era. And profoundly odd. Uh, and you'll see what I mean by that in just a few minutes. He was born to a Christian family in Alexandria. And he seems to have been almost a, a child genius. Uh, everyone acknowledged and, and, and that this man, this young boy, was very, very intelligent. And as he grew up in this Christian home, he burned with a real uh, fervor for Christianity. I mean, a really intense fervor for Christianity. His father was also very, very intense about Christianity. His father was Leonides. And uh, Leonides, in one of the persecutions that had swept through Alexandria at the turn of the third century, turn into the third century, Leonides was arrested and imprisoned. So this is a very serious Christian family. And young Origen, about 17 years old now, when his father is put in prison, writes his father a letter. And he tells his father... Do not deny Christ, no matter what. So here you have the son encouraging the father to stand firm in the face of terrible persecution. 
Think not first about the family. Think first about Christ. Leonides, whether it was because of the advice of his son or because it was a matter of his own convictions, he was in fact martyred when Origen was 17. Young Origen, and what that meant for Origen and his mother is that they lost all their belongings. Uh, and so he was reduced to uh, severe poverty. But a Christian widow took pity on him and uh, really took him under her wing and permitted him to, to finish his education. And he was, as I say, very, very outstanding. And just about a year later, after his father is martyred, this is the same persecution where Clement, the previous uh, superintendent of the Alexandrian school, had fled. So now there was a vacancy at the top. And so they asked the 18-year-old Origen to become the leader of the Alexandrian seminary. And under Origen, the seminary grew and grew and grew. Its fame, along with his fame, spread throughout the Middle East. He seems to have been extraordinarily successful at winning people to Christ, particularly intellectual types. There is a story that the mother of the Holy Roman Emperor had heard about this young man, Origen, and she paid his way to come visit her in Antioch so that she could hear what he had to say. There's no record as to whether or not she was converted, but she did ask him to come. Now, I had said that Origen is a rather odd duck earlier. Well, he was very, very rigid in his lifestyle. No meat, no wine. He slept on a bare floor uh, when he slept. He put himself on a very rigorous kind of schedule. And then, and this is going to hurt, guys. Having read Matthew 19.12, he decided to make himself a eunuch. Incidentally, he later regretted his, his decision. <laughs> so, in 228 A.D., he was made a presbyter in the church. Now, what's interesting about his ordination here, ordination as a presbyter, not as a bishop, that he was acknowledged not by the bishop in Alexandria, with whom Origen was not on good terms. But Origen, the young genius, was ordained a presbyter by the bishops of Jerusalem and Caesarea. Two foreign, two, two other bishops ordained him. And this created problems, especially with the local bishop, Bishop Demetrius of Alexandria. Demetrius very much opposed making Origen a presbyter. A couple of church synods or church meetings were held in 231 and 232 AD with the result that Origen was excommunicated from the Alexandrian church. 
And the charges were false teaching, self-mutilation, and violation of church laws. In particular, they meant by that that his ordination uh, was uh, done by those outside the local church in, in uh, Alexandria. Well, Origen, in the face of this excommunication, leaves Alexandria, goes to Caesarea, where he founds another school, just like this one, and he leads it to great prosperity. He's still a very, very famous person. Some years later, he was invited back to Alexandria. Origen uh, eventually returned to Alexandria when one of his students became the bishop some years later. But not long after he returned, yet another persecution was sweeping through the Middle East. This the Decian, the Emperor Decius. And Origen was imprisoned and cruelly tortured and condemned to death because he would not deny his, his faith. But what happened is the emperor died before this sentence could be carried out. And so Origen was released. But apparently, and this cannot be confirmed in any way, but scholars think that the injuries he suffered as a result of the torture and imprisonment, even though he was, was released, eventually within the year died. And so that's why I hesitated to say he was a martyr. He was not a public martyr, but he may have been a martyr in the sense that the injuries he received in prison uh, eventually led to his death within a fairly short time. Writings. Origen was a prolific writer. Someone has said he, has, he, he estimates somewhere along the number of 6,000 separate writings from the hand of Origen. Uh, well, certainly not all of them. Uh, Origen was considered by a lot of folk to have been a heretic. I'll go out and go to his theology and you'll see why they had real reservations about his teaching. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.